Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The last couple of years, when looking at this text, we've looked specifically at how it applies to our marriages. And all that is there, I think, is an important part, is not the main part of the text by any stretch of the imagination. The main part, the key to understanding this text, the text, by the way, is often misunderstood, I think, by many Christians, even by many pastors struggle with this text, because we miss the key, and the key is all the Old Testament background about Christ being the bridegroom for the church. That's the key to properly understanding this. Otherwise, what can happen is, and I, I saw, I was going around the internet yesterday, pastor sharing it, there's a skit by Rowan Atkinson, many of you know him as Mr. Bean, he also plays this vicar character. He's reading his John 2 text, and there's some goofy lines in there, and then it says after he made the wine, some parents asked him if he did children's parties. Now, while that's quite sacrilegious, I think that's the way a lot of Christians read this text. Oh, it's really cool he made a lot of wine. What a neat trick. And yet, when we read it that way, we miss all the beautiful, wonderful, glorious images of the gospel that are woven into every fabric of this text. That's what we want to look at today. So to start, we need to, before even getting into the details of the text, look at two issues that make up the backgrounds of this text. The first is that Christ is the bridegroom. As I said, this is a theme throughout the entire Old Testament. We're just going to look at two examples. From Ezekiel 16. Now, leading up to this part in Ezekiel 16, it's describing how Israel is this naked and battered woman just kind of tossed to the side of the road, and this is what God does for Israel. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals and badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen, fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through my splendor, which I have bestowed on you, says the Lord your gods. Right? Israel is pictured now as this woman who's taken, and even though she's been battered and naked and nothing to behold, God sets his love upon her, makes her his, and adorns her beautifully as a bride. And even more as a bride here, even as a queen, as his queen, as his bride. So to Hosea, the entire book of Hosea is centered around this theme, right? We all know the story that Hosea is told to go and marry a prostitute. And he does, he marries Gomer. And there's lots of imagery throughout there, and lots of wonderful promises like Hosea 2, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord's. It's interesting, both of these books in Ezekiel 
16 right after this, and then again in 23 in Hosea, what happens is the people of Israel, even though they're God's bride, they go off and they become a harlot. And they cheat on the Lord's with idols. Right? So Hosea, you have that wonderful picture of Hosea going, and he buys back Gomer. She's got herself into slavery because of her actions. And he buys her back, and the Lord says, take her home again, make her your wife once more. Right? All of the Old Testament is bursting with this imagery. That the Lord loves his people as a bridegroom loves the bride. That he cares for her, defends her, does all things for her. Which also then is why we have the Song of Songs in the Bible, by the way. Song of Songs makes us all uncomfortable. I just taught someone who, I think, they said they read it for the first time in their life. They're, they're almost 80 years old, and they said they read it for the first time, and they're a little bit shocked by it. Right? It says a lot of things that maybe seem a little odd to us. If you understand the imagery in the Song of Songs properly, you see in it all of the imagery of the tabernacle and temple that is scattered throughout the entire book. If you understand it as God's love for his people first and foremost, the entire book makes a lot more sense. And it does make us a little uncomfortable, which is odd, right? We live in a highly sexualized culture, and yet reading that the joy of the believer with Christ, or the church with Christ, is comparable to a husband and wife even though the Bible says it all over the place, we still kind of recoil at that. And yet, the thrill, the exhilaration, the joy that a husband and wife have is just a mere reflection of what Christ and the church has. And in fact, in John's Gospel, just in these opening chapters, chapters 2, 3, and 4, all the way to about the middle of 4, this theme of bridegroom and bride runs straight through. And, as we'll see in a moment, how the bridegroom purifies his brides. And it doesn't just stop there, because John, who also wrote, wrote Revelation, the whole book of Revelation is essentially, how does God prepare a bride for his son? Right? If you really want to understand Revelation, that's the key theme that runs the whole thing. That's why it culminates in the marriage feast of the Lamb. One more thing about this I think is helpful. The word that's used at the end, where it says... This beginning of signs, this first miracle, this first sign, can also be translated the principle of signs. That is, if we understand this miracle, if we understand it properly, it can help us then interpret all the rest of his miracles. Which I believe is indeed the case. The second thing we need to see, for looking at some of these details, is the wine imagery. What's with all the wine? Right? It is not, as I mentioned, it's not just some party trick. It is not just to make sure they have enough wine and he's just being a really nice guy. That diminishes what actually takes place here when we view it that way. Wine imagery is pointing to the great eschatological, the last days, the end and final feast. Throughout the entire Old Testament, Wine is viewed that way. It's the great blessing of God, especially as seen in connection with the Messiah and his kingdom. Going back to Song of Songs, verse 2-4, brings both of these images together really beautifully. Right? It says, So he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Right? I was even taught a song as a kid that used those words. 
But the word that we translate banqueting house, literally in the Hebrew, is he brought me to his house of wine. Wine throughout the Bible is a picture of the blessing of the future messianic kingdom. Right? Wine that makes glad the heart of man, as it says in Psalm 104. It's a picture of the blessing of God's covenantal love, his mercy, his grace. Where on the flip side, a lack of wine, to not have wine, is a sign of God's divine judgments. Where there is no wine, when we're looking at it this way, there is not God's love, there is not God's mercy. So that wine is symbolic throughout the entire Bible of the age of salvation and all its gifts. But those two things in mind, we can now look at some of the details and they make a little more sense. For example, when Mary comes to him and says they have no wine, we don't know exactly what she's thinking. We're not entirely sure. Does she just mean they've run out of actual wine? Or is she thinking this is your moment for us to have the grand messianic banquet? Now's your time. So what does Jesus say? That's how Jesus at least is going to answer the question. Otherwise, his answer makes no sense. None whatsoever. He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The hour throughout John's gospel is the hour of his glorification. The hour of his death. Right? That's what it refers to through the entire book. In essence, Jesus is saying, look, it's not quite time yet. We're not there yet. Even, and then this bugs, I know all of you hear it this way. We even had this come up in my family devotions this week. When Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? We hear that as being rude. Right? If your kids said to you, mothers in here, if they called you woman... You're not going to be real happy about that. But do you know the other time Jesus calls his mom a woman? One other time. The whole Gospel of John. When he's hanging on the cross. And he looks at her and says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. It's not an issue of being rude here. Some translations will even try to soften it and say, Dear woman. He is, though, trying to put some distance between himself and her because of what he's going to have to do. And Mary, throughout Scripture, and here even, is a figure of Eve, of Israel, of the church, waiting in expectation for the Messiah, for him to act, for him to do his parts. And so he says, look, it's not yet my hour, it's not time for death and resurrection, which is the only thing, the only thing, that can bring about the feast. That's the only way it's going to come about. It's not time for that yet. And yet, she says, even though she doesn't seem to understand exactly what's going on, she says, whatever he says, do that. Do it. What does he say to do? Or well, told there's these six water, part, water pots of stone. And they're massive holding 25 to 30 gallons each. Now there's two things that set this up. There's only two times numbers. This happens this wedding on the third day from a previous event, from the end of chapter 1. Third day already gets us thinking about his death and resurrection, as it should. But these six stone water pots of purification, right, they're massive. And there's six of them. And again, 
This is pointing to, and it's very clear, I think, if you look throughout the whole Bible, right? You have the six days of creation. And for the Jews here, these are water pots containing water that's used for purifying. And Jesus is going to take these, and he's going to utterly transform them. It's not a mistake that there happen to be these massive water pots for purification. Christ is bringing the new creation. He's bringing the new purification. The wine indeed, and we cannot miss this or we miss the whole thing. The wine indeed is a picture of his blood. How does baptism cleanse? Because it, it is, if you will, infused with his blood. Right? As Peter tells us. What is it that purifies us in the Lord's Supper? Receive his body and his blood with the bread and wine. And so we have here this beautiful picture that Christ is announcing that you, that all people, are only purified by him and his blood, period. Not by Old Testament washings and cleansings, but by him and him alone. Right? Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 5. What does he say? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the words, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. How do you as an individual, how does the church get cleansed of all our sin, all our wickedness? How is it that we come to be, rather than that naked, beat-up, and bloody person on the side of the roads in need of rescuing, how is it we are saved? It's only through the blood of Christ. That first is applied to us in our baptism, to wash away all our sins. As we continue to receive it, to be purified in the Lord's Supper. That is what the key to understanding all of the things that are then said next is. If we understand everything that the Old Testament says about the bridegroom, if we understand what this is about wine, then this is no mere parlor trick. This is no mere miracle just to provide a little bit of wine. It's a declaration that the bridegroom has come, that he's here in the flesh to save and redeem all of his people. That's what's going on. The Messiah is here to save. Right? It's not like it's an accident that his first miracle happens at a wedding, or that all these other things are going on around us. It's all part of the plan to announce who he is and why he's come. Notice the reaction to it then. Right? The master of the feast says, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have all drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now there's a couple of ways to take this. First, his parents is astonished. He's kind of shocked by this. The other reason you have to understand his shock and astonishment is our Lord made nearly a thousand bottles worth of wine. Far more than they could have drunk ever at the party. Probably far more than the village itself could have handled. Right? This is an excess and overabundance that to the master of the feast kind of seems like a waste. Why Why did he bring this out now? They're so well drunk, they're not even going to know the difference. Some of them may not even drink. They may not even care that you've done all this. This seems rather extravagant. It seems over the top. 
What a waste on these people. Yes. Exactly. It is a picture of Christ overflowing, overabundant grace. So much wine with no concern about running out of that party or any future parties they might have for the weeks to come. Right? There's no way that you can get through that wine before it goes back. There's so much wine there. Because Christ is showing that when he comes to us, when he rescues us, when he saves us, there is no lack. There is no want. It is overabundantly generous. It is overflowing grace. Right? That picture in the Old Testament of the hills like dripping with wine because there's just so much. The Messiah is here and he comes and he comes with enough for all. He comes to save and rescue. So John says this beginning of signs, this principle of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It is not just that Jesus is revealed to be God for this miracle. He's revealed to be the Messiah. It is that. But also, in particular, it reveals how he is going to be Messiah. How he's going to save. How will he be known as Messiah? Again, the glory of Christ throughout the Gospel of John is all about his life of suffering so that he might die and rise again. All for the life of the world. That is how he is revealed at the wedding of Cana. He is revealed to be the bridegroom who will lay down his life for the bride, who will sacrifice himself out of love for that bride, that she might be saved and have all good gifts flowing from his pure side. That's how he's revealed. Not just as some miracle worker, right, some kind of magician who did a really cool thing, but as the very Son of God who is the very bridegroom of his people who's come to rescue them. That's how he's revealed. Now, I think flowing out of this entire passage, there's several things we can look at that I think are very practical implications of when we know this, then we can look at some other details and say, we can live in light of this joy and this mercy and grace. The first one, perhaps maybe a little odd if you don't think about it this way, when you go to Christ in prayer, you don't know what you're asking for. Just like Mary Mary didn't really seem to know what she was asking or what it would cost. What would be the implications of what she meant? And yet, you know what? She asked anyway. And that's how it is with us. We go to God in prayer and we don't always know what in the world we're saying or what we need or what we're asking for. But guess what? If you know to take it to Jesus, then you're in the right place. And he might have to give you a gentle rebuke and say, you're not really sure what you're asking for. But what happens? It's still going to bless you anyway. He's still going to take care of it in the best possible way. Even if you don't understand, even if you're not sure, ask anyway. Trust that he knows. Second, look at Mary's response. Whatever he says to you, do it. This in many ways is almost exactly what she says to Angel Gabriel, right? Let it be to me according to your word. Except for now she's telling others to do the same. Whatever he says to you, do it. This really is a beautiful picture of the Christian life. If you're not sure what to do, whatever he says to you, whatever he reveals to you in his word, 
Do that. And you'll be on sure footing. You'll be on a path of wisdom. You'll be on the path of righteousness. So also here too, I heard something this week that I think pointed this out, and it was quite right. We have this overabundance of wine, and there's probably many people at the party who had drunk so much they didn't drink anymore. And they missed out on this best wine, this fine wine that Christ had made. Throughout Israel's history, God would do these amazing, wonderful things for them, and then they would reject him. And they'd go wandering off, and they'd play the harlot with other gods. Don't play the harlots. Right? This is a warning throughout the entire Bible. Don't go wandering after other gods. Don't go after them. Don't seek them. Don't think Christ isn't coming through for you, so you've got to go running somewhere else. It ends in destruction. Rather, look at this picture of what Christ did at this wedding at Cana, and all that it means for you and your salvation, and cling to that instead. Know that he is the one and only one who can save you. So, too, I think we can get a beautiful picture here that your whole life is grounded in the fact that Christ comes and he overwhelmingly, overabundantly blesses you. First and foremost, spiritually, but then, of course, through temporal things as well. Christ is in the business of giving and blessing you again and again and again. And this is true of your marriages as well. One of the things almost all the church fathers point out is that one of the things the miracle at Cana teaches us is that God desires to bless weddings. And that is certainly an implication here. So that God desires to bless your marriage. He desires to be with you. First and foremost, he blesses you through his word and sacraments. That is the foundation of your marriage. That is the place you must keep running back to as husband and wife to receive God's good gifts, the only foundation you can build your marriage upon. So, too, something else Christ does for marriages, and he does this in varying degrees and ways, but he blesses marriages with children as part of his good gifts. See Psalm 127 and 128, for example. And the Christians, with all blessings, were to receive God's blessings in our marriage, including children, no matter how many or how few, with gratitude and thanksgiving for Christ's goodness to us. Christ and he alone is going to be the foundation of our marriages. His blessing, which is why, by the way, we have weddings with pastors so that God's word of blessing be placed upon the marriage right at the beginning. That word of blessing is what's going to carry you and strengthen you you keep returning to. No matter how difficult times get, no matter how much it seems like maybe the marriage is barely holding on, run to Christ and to his blessing for your marriage. Right? Paul picks up on all of this and gives advice to husband and wives. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. Husbands, love and sacrifice yourselves for your wives. And by the time he's at the end of it, he said, look, I'm talking about Christ in the church. We can't look at marriage, we can't even think about marriage without thinking about Christ and the church. Which also means the same attitude of submission to Christ and love and self-sacrifice for others. This is true for all Christians and all vocations. It's not only true for husbands and wives. All of this, I think, can only be built upon 
and founded upon the facts that Christ is the bridegroom. He is the Savior, he is the Messiah. We didn't get to see it, right? It says, the disciples saw it and they believed in him. We didn't get to see it, but we got to hear it. And we got to have it revealed to us and have our eyes open to the fact that Christ is the bridegroom who comes for us, his church, his glorious bride, and rescues her by his blood. By the very blood that is put upon us in our baptisms, the very blood we receive in the absolution, the very blood we receive in the Lord's Supper. It's an overabundant, overwhelming grace. And it's why that imagery throughout the Bible works so well. Because a wedding day should be a day of joy. And all of Christ's gifts, as they're poured out upon us in a multitude of ways, produce in us a joy that has no ends. A joy that will culminate at the feast of feasts that has no end, with Christ forever and ever. Amen. The peace of God passes on our saying, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.